but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation with philosopher, writer, and activist Charles Eisenstein. For those of you who aren't familiar with Charles's work, it's no exaggeration to say that his ideas in his books and writing have, have shaped my personal worldview more than any other author I can think of. What I appreciated about this conversation was, was his deep presence. And at times, as you'll hear, there was a refusal to answer my question because he felt like there was a deeper and more real question beneath the surface. I've re-listened to this conversation several times myself, and some of what really stood out for me was, was our mutual sense of, of confinement and wrongness and alien, alienation that we felt growing up in middle-class education. And he described how he wrestled with this question of who marooned me on planet crazy. We also touched in on the state of the world and how he believes that grief for the dying world is actually what is required for the world not to die. And then I especially enjoyed him making the case for getting truly serious about being selfish and why Dr. Seuss's myth of the Grinch is so relevant for our times. Finally, I'll add that if this conversation moved you as much as it did me, please do share the link with someone who you think it might resonate with as well. This episode is also sponsored by me, or more officially, the Nervous System Mastery Training that I'll be running. Applications will be opening up soon, so if you're curious to nerd out on research-backed protocols for emotional self-regulation and resilience, you can find more details at nsmastery.com, which is also linked in the show notes. All right, without further ado, please enjoy listening and potentially re-listening to this consciousness-expanding conversation with the legendary Charles Eisenstein. Okay, welcome, Charles. It is so lovely to have you here. Thanks, Johnny. I'm happy to be here. How are you feeling in three words? I'm feeling relaxed. Okay. Uh, and I hear in the background my, my son playing the piano. Mm. He's just started taking lessons. He's nine years old. And he's mm. just like, you can't keep him away from it. It's <laughs> really beautiful. Oh, amazing. Wow. Um, so I, I imagine this conversation will flow and unfold across many different themes. Um, but one of the questions I found that tends to lead to interesting places is, is this, and it's, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you maybe share a story about something that you were curious about? Well, you know, the, uh, the town in uh, Prairie Home Companion where every child is above average, Yep. So, you know, I don't, I'm not going to claim to be exceptional <laughs> as a child. Um, I used to uh, spend a lot of time thinking. Hmm. I would just sit there. Maybe these days we would call it meditation, but I would just sit there <laughs> and my parents would come and, what are you doing? You know, 
I'd be like thinking. I don't think I, that, I don't think I was asking questions though. I think I was more just enjoying my imagination. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, I'm just thinking actually about curiosity and what is it that we really want when we're feeling curious? Is it that we actually want the information that we're curious about? Or is there something else? Like curiosity is, is a, um, it's, 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 a, it's a positive emotion, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of fun to be curious, but it's also a little, uh, can be even unbearable. Yeah, totally. So like, I guess curiosity is this, it's like this discomfort. It's a slight, there's a discomforting curiosity too. There's a tension, yeah. Yeah, attention. So it's like a a it's the feeling of wanting to expand, of wanting to expand, mm-hmm. of wanting to to expand your boundaries, of mm-hmm. wanting to become a little bit more than what you are. Mm. Um even to be, well, okay, I'm not gonna theorize too much more. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah. No, to that's, be more that's... fully in the world. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think for me a big yeah. a big piece of it as well is like not being attached to any outcome, but it's almost like curiosity for the sake of itself. There's like an intrinsic desire to follow it regardless yeah. of, of how it turns out. Yeah, there's a humility in it. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a letting go because if, if you already know, then you're not going to be curious. Right. So to be yeah. curious, you have to already not be so sure. Yeah. Like to, you have to already admit that you don't know something. Right, right, exactly. And, and maybe... That's why curiosity is so lacking in highly ideological people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Dogmatic the, people. Tend there's not that to be re- reward from certainty that I think people have accumulated. Yeah. And so it kind of flies in the face of their intrinsic curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, the, the second part of that question was um, if you have any favorite books or stories that you read growing up that come to mind. My favorite growing up was The Phantom Tollbooth. You familiar with that? No, I've not heard of it. So it's, it's by this guy, Norman Juster. He only wrote one book in his whole life. He had okay. some other career. Okay. And it's about this boy who uh, receives this package in the mail. And it's this toll booth and like a toy car. And he gets in it. And all of a sudden, he's, you know, in some other land. And it's very <laughs> playful. And there's a lot of puns in it and stuff. It, it doesn't have like any profound, like at least not obviously any profound teachings. Mm-hmm. But it 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 did like I, I read it again and again and again. Hmm. Hmm. Brought me into, I guess I guess I liked it because it it gave me a certain sense of freedom and possibility. Hmm. Um, hmm. And I guess you know a boy that age longs for the independence of mm-hmm. being in a car and being out in your in a different world. You know, it's, mm. it's like this premonition of adulthood yeah. in all of its positive aspect. Yeah. But if you're not familiar with the book, I, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about it. No, no, it's, it, it's fine. I mean, just from those themes. And the reason that I ask is that I think often part of the story is in some way connected to our kind of life's work or our life's mission um, after that. And so that the fact that it's kind of about freedom and imagining being in a different world, that, that kind of lines up in, in an interesting way. <clears throat> Yeah. Also, it's about it's about a, basically a kingdom that has gone to shambles, mm-hmm. where where the the princess's rhyme and reason have been banished mm-hmm. to the mountains of ignorance. 
And so the mission of the, the boy ends up, you know, on a mission to retrieve them and bring them back oh, wow. to the kingdom. Because the, the two kings in the kingdom, there's one king of numbers and one king of words, and they're fighting, arguing all the time. Huh. Y- yeah. It's a beautiful book. It's, it has like, and some people just don't like it at all. Uh, but there's a certain something about it. And there's a gentleness about it also hmm. that even then appealed to me. Yeah, I'm sure some of your listeners have, have read this book, but it's a, it's a wonderful book to give an eight-year-old, eight, huh. nine, 10 year old anywhere from like eight to 11, I would say even. Okay, beautiful. Especially well, I will. Boys. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll definitely look yeah. it up and put it, put it in the show notes and read it myself. Yeah. It sounds, sounds really good. Um, and it's, it's actually a really nice segue to something that I wanted to share, which is something that really comes across in your writing and, and work and, and like all the conversations that I've listened to is that there's this like the sense of genuine earnestness and also a willingness to grapple with kind of difficult and un- uncomfortable questions. And, and I know that one of the foundational inquiries that you held kind of growing up was, was like seeking to understand the sense of wrongness that you felt with society. So yeah. could you maybe speak to, to what you remember of the, the inward process of, of like feeling into that question and, and also how it unfolded as you were writing The Ascents of Humanity? Let me start by talking about questions like that. Hmm. Um, usually the question is born within us before we could possibly put the question to words. Hmm. This is true. Like even right now, you might feel a question within you. Hmm. And if I ask you what it is and pressure you to make haste and put it into words, Hmm. you might actually lose touch with that question and ask me another question that isn't the real question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this question incubated in me for a very long time, Hmm. 10, 15, I would say 20 years. Hmm. It started out as just this like subtle feeling of resentment and confinement this protest, like, like this feeling, something isn't right here, but everybody I respect, all of the authorities, the parents, the teachers, like the whole system has put me here in this classroom, doing this homework assignment, doing this worksheet, uh, trotting through this event, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it was, I've been put here. So they're all saying that it is right and proper and good that I am here, but I don't feel that way. Like there's this, there was this mute protest against the conditions of my life, a lonely protest, I would even call it, Mm. because like, who is my ally in affirming and validating my resentment, my, my, my resistance, my protest, Mm. nobody. So it took over time, I, I, I became aware of, of confirmation that indeed something is amiss here. Mm. And it came in the form of, of learning about the world. It came in the form first of seeing the Ethiopian famine, pictures from the Ethiopian famine. I think that was in 1976 or something. Um, it was in the, in the mid, mid or late 70s. Mm. Uh, you know, these emaciated children uh, reading uh, Silent Spring, reading Gulag Archipelago, um, reading um, 
and as I became a teenager, I read uh, other radical critiques of our of our system, and I was like, "Aha, hmm. I wasn't making it up." And and my feeling of being out of place made sense, you know, like like say you're you're um, playing a game of tiddlywinks, you know, or World of Warcraft or whatever it is, and and there you are having fun. And is, that makes sense if everything is fine in the world. But imagine if you're playing World of Warcraft and right across the room, uh, you know, a baby is being abused or some horrific act is taking place. You're not going to feel good playing your video game anymore. Mm-hmm. So what happened was like, even before I was aware of what was happening in the world, I felt it. And I think all of us feel it. Mm. And it's like, what's going on? Is something going on? I don't see anything going on. Looks, mm. Everything looks fine. The routines of a normal American childhood. You know, I mean, I was middle class. I wasn't seeing cops beat people up. I wasn't seeing gang fights. You know, I mean, it was, it, things looked fine, mm. but just out of my vision. So it wasn't across the room, but it was in you know, Ethiopia, it was in some other part of the world. It was the rainforest getting cut down. I found out about that in 1980, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and then like, I just couldn't stay occupied in the things that I was told that a normal, healthy child should attend to. Mm-hmm. And that's when the question began to take more, more of a, more of a shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I can certainly relate to that feeling as well. Um, growing up in, in England in a kind of very strict private school environment and just feeling caged and, but at the same time, not having something concrete to like put my finger on, like what else is out there? And, and I think I resorted to kind of reading about <clears throat> adventure stories and, and travel was kind of my outlet initially into a kind of more expansive worldview. Um, but I'm, I'm personally fascinated in um, and in like the initiation or installment process and how and how these tend to almost universally um, emerge through some form of crisis. And there's a, a wilderness guide and a depth psychologist called Bill Plotkin, who he yeah, basically I, descri- I've, I've met him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's been on yeah. the podcast, too. And he, and he describes mm-hmm. like this, this journey of soul descent that I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, which like the, mm-hmm. the ego structures, they've given us this like firm ground begin to just dissolve under our feet. And it sounds like you've also been through one of these soul descents of, of sorts. Um, and, and I'm curious, like, what was the particular flavor of this, this crisis, this initiation for you? Well, it ha- hasn't been just one. Mm. Um, the flavor of it. The flavor is loneliness. Mm. It's a kind of a... Uh, I don't know if I had to name a flavor, it'd be maybe sour or astringent. <laughs> uh, not bitter, not sweet. But if, but, but, yeah, I mean, it's fu- it's funny that that we're you're speaking of a kind of a descent of the soul, like coming into f- more embodiment and more presence in the world, because it also feels like a, 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 a has the feeling of being lost, mm. far from home. Maybe this is not universal, 
but but for me it was it's the feeling of who marooned me on planet crazy <laughs> it like yeah um a feeling of a, a feeling of alienation um mm-hmm. estrangement as i began to ask the question about the wrongness in the world i began to notice that everything is wrong and i don't want to like sound negative right or to to contradict the spiritual teaching that all is perfect that's true too mm-hmm. but that perfection includes the experience and perception of everything being wrong mm-hmm. that's part of the perfection and that is a very real potent state mm-hmm. so everything from birth to death like literally the way children are born in hospitals like all of the things that happen around childbirth mm-hmm. uh the cutting of the umbilical cord too early you know the 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 drugging of the mother the i mean every single thing about it if you go into some of the uh you know alternative literature about childbirth all the way to to this the sequestering of old people in nursing homes mm-hmm. and they're dying alone on life support trying to keep them alive as long as possible as they have already been extracted from community i mean the whole thing the built environment the way that buildings buildings are constructed the the littering of the landscape with advertising i mean every single thing and the most um confusing bewildering part of it is that everyone seems to think it's okay mm. like nobody is in an uproar about it they just accept accept it as normal and okay i'm overstating the case it's not nobody it's not everybody but it seems that way that's mm-hmm. the subjective experience so it's it's a, so my feeling was and i still have it it still visits me all the time mm-hmm. of being marooned on planet crazy mm-hmm. and why <laughs> so that that was the so a question after it has finished operating in a human being it then molts and it gives birth to another question mm-hmm. so the question about the wrongness in the world that is no longer the question that i carry because what i came to is that the wrongness is part of a is is part of a larger evolutionary process mm-hmm. of exploring the reaches of separation to return enriched by the journey mm-hmm. and and enabled by the journey through the gifts gained on the journey mm-hmm. to enter even a new level of creation So like I I I resolved the question that I've been carrying for 20 years. Mm. But it gives birth to another question and that question is why. Like mm. why am I here? Mm. What is mine to do? Like what mm. why? Why did I do that? What like like mm. <laughs> It's even it's it's a why that if I add any more words to it I have cut off a little bit. of what the question actually is. Mm. Mm. And the answer to that question is not does not start with because. <laughs> huh. What what's what's coming alive for me right now is actually an image of um I used to live in Brighton and uh I was going through a a grieving process and I remember 
kind of asking a similar kind of question. And I looked up and saw this murmuration of starlings um, above the above the pier, above, uh, above the ocean. And I was kind of like asking for myself, like, like, why are they, why is it so beautiful? Like, why are they dancing in this way? And there was this like deep feeling that emerged. It was almost like, if I was going to put it into words, it was like, of course, it was like, mm -hmm. it was like, of course, <laughs> it's like to, to the question feels ridiculous in this particular state of being, but it's not like a, it's not like a rational answer. It's almost like a yeah. feeling of like overwhelming beauty where in which the question just again, maybe dissolves right. and, and molds into something else. Um, and, and, and this is, this is kind of like a, yeah, another really nice segue into um, what I really wanted to speak about, which is this like, uh, this coming coming into the age of of interbeing or reunion, and you've spoken about it in in many different ways. But I think the one the way that really resonates is um, you described it as like falling back in love with the world. And my own flavor of of this kind of crisis came through losing my fiance um, in this grieving process. And at her memorial, I had this um, I, I kind of had this this moment of inspiration and shared a poem that was basically speaking to the fact that she was the one that taught me how to love. And that now that she was gone and that her spirit was, was part of the part of the world that it was almost like a parting gift, like a beautiful invitation to learn to fall in love with the world anew that she was a mm -hmm. part of. And I'd love to hear from you. Like, what does it, what does it mean? Or maybe what does it feel like to fall back in love with the world and and how is how has that question matured in you over the years so at at one point through after a lot of inquiry medicine work um meditation i became aware that my feeling of alienation from the world of estrangement was like this threshold that that I had to step across into being fully present in the world. Mm. It's like, I, or another way to, to, to put it is I was standing, I was so habituated to estrangement that I was standing apart mm. and not fully stepping in to being here, not fully stepping into embodiment, not fully committing to one choice over another choice not being fully present at any time with any person. So I'm not sure how, that, how, how I can frame that in terms of falling in love with the world. You know, the phrase falling in love, it already conveys that this is not something that you do. Mm -hmm. It's not a, not, a, not a choice to fall in love. Mm -hmm. It's a gift something that happens to you. And very often it is a person that in that represents the world mm -hmm. that that breaches that threshold. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it's been for me. Mm. It it but it yeah. also it, it um it also feels like my experience of of the grieving process was that there was almost like a kind of like fully feeling the grief all the way through in the same way that it sounds like you kind of fully felt the alienation and the sense of loneliness. There's almost like a, like a portal on the other side that kind of like blasts you into the, 
the extreme other end of the spectrum to some degree, like when it, when the lostness is fully experienced and fully lived, um, it, it kind of connects yeah. to the. Yeah. It's like, uh, to be fully present in the world is like, it's like jumping, leaping into the, into the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, that, that you are not going to be the same. Like you are actually paradoxically dying yeah. by being fully alive. All of these potentialities collapse into one actuality, just like when you choose a partner, all of the potential partners, then mm-hmm. you know, you've, you've basically chosen not to be with any of them. Yeah. You've chosen to be with just one person or I don't know, maybe if you have multiple partners, <laughs> but, but you know, like you can't be with everybody. So, so loss is fundamental to this dimension that we're living in right now. Mm-hmm. The loss, not only the loss of everything that you love, but also the loss of everything that may have been had you mm-hmm. not chosen one thing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, maybe on some level, I'm, I'm like, rebelling against that, <laughs> that, you know, I want it all, you know, I want to be partners with everybody. <laughs> I want to live every life that I could yeah. possibly live yeah. and, and not commit to one and not learn piano. Cause then I'll never learn chess, you know, mm. and not learn chess because then I'll never learn uh, skiing and, and, or calligraphy mm. and, so yeah, I guess it's for me it's about accepting being here. And that's the the flip side of this alienation. It's like, oh, I'm feeling alienated. Well, have I actually agreed to be embraced by the bosom in, in the bosom of the world? Mm. Like, am I the one pushing it away and then feeling alienated from the thing that I'm pushing away? So there's more, because uh, again, it's like, there's, there's, there, that's my part. My part is to say, okay, I'll be here. I agree. I will mm-hmm. fully inhabit earth. Mm-hmm. But then there's also earth's part, mm-hmm. humanity's part, your part. Uh, do you accept me? Will you put me to good use? Like, do you really accept me? Will you see me, not some image of me, not some pretense, not what you would like me to be, mm-hmm. but actually to see me? Mm-hmm. Because that's what that is the invitation that brings me more fully here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. If you you do you do want me here, me. Mm-hmm. And this has been. This is this is like really what's been alive for me in the last year or two. It's actually gone on a little longer than that. Um, feeling more and more that I'm not being used by myself or others for what I'm really here for. Mm. Like I don't want to write more books to, with more ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm getting sick of that. I'm getting sick of talking about the ascent of humanity and the story of separation and all of these philosophical concepts, Mm. not because that they're useless, but because I've done that. Mm -hmm. And even if I was here for that, I am no longer here for that. 
Mm. So that's the that's the question. I mean, again, it's part of the why. Mm. Uh, why am I here? What what am I here for? Mm. And I can't necessarily put it into words, but I can feel it when I am being well used. Mm-hmm. I can feel mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And and so my work has been let me be fully available to be well used. And then if there are any takers, all right, I'll be here. I'll stay here. Mm. And if not, I'll probably go somewhere else. So this, this mm. whole thing that goes along with, you know, health mm. conditions and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I'll be somewhere else. That means maybe I'll pass from this plane or maybe I'll just go be a hermit somewhere, you know, <laughs> and, and just enjoy the pleasures that this realm has to offer. Mm. Maybe I'll do that anyway. <laughs> like that, that, that that's, that's part of it too. Yeah. That's part of the why. Yeah. Like you're saying, like to enjoy the, the, the murmuration, you know? Yeah. 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 It, 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 that really, really resonates with me as well. And, um, David White has this wonderful phrase of like the conversational nature of reality. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to of like, if it's, it's not just me and it's not just the world, but like, it's the, the magical frontier in between the two. And, um, yeah, I, I also really am kind of sitting with this question of, of like, how can I be used well? And I think at times that leads me into a kind of grasping into wanting to be of service and wanting to contribute in a way that actually isn't kind of, I, I'm not really fully responding to an invitation. It's more of like a pushing right. from me, um, as opposed right, to, you might have ideas Right. Sorry. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. But just exactly that of like almost like manufacturing an invitation in my mind and then being like, right, I'm I'm useful. I'm. Right. This is this is going to be helpful. But then perhaps that's actually just kind of um, ignoring what is present. And 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 at times there might be a use in it in just sitting here and having a having a beautiful conversation or watching the watching the birds, whatever it is. Right. Yeah, like I have the same thing. My ideas of what is useful sometimes get in the way yeah. of actually recognizing in the moment yeah. what my highest use is. But I know that it, it is, you know, I'm still publishing essays and stuff and doing podcasts, mm-hmm. but the work that's been most satisfying in general has been just person to person interactions. Mm. Mm. or being present with small groups and just being available mm. like and when i'm when i'm fully available and people avail themselves of me mm. then i won't say what happens but i feel very very useful like yeah. i just know yes this is yeah. why i'm here yeah, yeah, yeah. the question is answered yeah. the answer is this this mm-hmm. the answer mm-hmm. to why is this mm-hmm. thing is a day later i might have no idea what the answer to the question is yeah. <laughs> yeah it's this this beautiful like remembering and forgetting process and <clears throat> for, for me that that's really been coming through and doing one-on-one breathwork journeys with people and kind of creating container for 
um, for like the full spectrum of human emotion to emerge and just being the invitation to be fully 100% present for every little experience that, that is arising. And I still love reading, writing, podcasting, but I think there is a different quality of aliveness that comes online, I think, in that, in that specific container. Um, so if, if, you, if you're still happy to talk about some of the, um, the, the, the story of separation, there's a, a few questions that are kind of alive for me that I'd love to, <laughs> love to share with you. All right. Um, and one of, yeah, one of the thoughts that I had while I was, I was rereading, um, rereading your books in the last few weeks and this, this idea that there might be like four stories, but not two. And what I mean by this is that they're not only stories, but they're, they're lenses through which the stories can be told. And as an example, I wonder if the story of, of reunion, if, if it's looked at through the lens of separation, if it risks being compressed into like a, like a rapture ideology in which it's like an imagined goal of perfection. And then maybe on the other side, and I think we were just kind of speaking to this, that in the current story of separation or the current age of separation, um, if it's viewed through that lens of interbeing where the kind of question of purpose is just, is just obvious, then it might in fact appear like this kind of this glorious perfection and in which you know, part of the unfolding adventure of the, of the universe and the cosmos. Um, so does that, does that resonate? And are there maybe mm -hmm. pitfalls of like grasping on too strongly to the, the age of reunion, but kind of ignoring what's, what's present? Yeah. Yeah. That could happen. I mean, if you, yeah, I often look at the story of separation or the age of separation through the lens of interbeing through the lens of reunion. Mm. And as you said, see it as part of a larger process. Um, and I can go the other way too. Um, uh, looking at reunion as like this, linear progress, you know, like all mapped out and everything. Mm. But but really the full meaning of the phrase, the age of reunion is beyond the, uh, anything you could map out beyond and beyond even the semantics of, the, of those words. Mm. It's, it has a poetic resonance. Mm. It is, a being that like it, from the story of separation, we might plot it in linear time. And here was the watershed and here's when the age turned. And then, mm -hmm. but, but letting go of that, I would say that it, it, it exists outside of time. Mm. And it, it's like this, this light like here's here's history we're we're on the timeline of history and walking from here toward the horizon but there's the sun above us mm. and and sometimes it's behind a cloud and sometimes the clouds part and there we are we're in the age of reunion for a second for a minute or or we see or for a few years mm. in a certain special place in time on earth like we mm. see but it, even then it's not the full thing you know it's it's so like the, we never get to the destination by walking toward it, mm. but it's always there, like just beyond the veil. 
Mm. And its light diffracts into our current reality. So it's not a linear progression. It's to, to enter into the age of reunion. It's more of a uh, shift in timelines mm. from the reality stream, which is also a story stream. It's a mythic existence mm. from one to another uh, through a process kind of like quantum tunneling here one minute there another minute mm-hmm. and it and 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 our own psychology is part of this reality stream so when we make when when we evolve into a configuration that is dissonant with the current reality stream then we end up shape-shifting reality itself into conformity with who we have become. Mm. As David White would say, reality is a conversation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, this can get really, really esoteric. Okay. And, and, and if I try to explain it too much, so maybe sometimes it's better to leave it in the form of paradoxes. Yep. Like, the age of reunion is already here. Mm. And sometimes it isn't here, even though it's always here. <laughs> Things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, yeah. I'm not being, being fancy here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this no, is I, something that, I get that you could meditate on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a beautiful Cohen. Um, so that, that kind of brings up... Um, well, one of the most meaningful conversations I think I've had on this on this podcast, when I felt like I was kind of being used in a really beautiful way, was with Zach Stein, whose work I, I know you're familiar with, and it, it feels like there's there's some really beautiful parallels between his work and the kind of framing of the the transition between stories from the pre-tragic to the tragic to the post-tragic on the other side, mm. and and I wonder, kind of thinking back to this idea of like falling back in love with the world um, and pairing with like, with what is going on right now. And, and, you know, the reality that like the guy is dying in, in many ways, kind of, as you were speaking to the forests are burning and, and maybe there's like a, this is just me theorizing, but like, there's like a collective initiation process that we're allowing ourselves to be broken open by the unimaginable grief and, and by the generations of collective trauma and, and, and perhaps that um, like a, a truly generative act might be to, to just kind of praise the, the dying world with our grief. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Does that, does that land? Does what, what comes Not to life for you? Okay. Grief for the dying world is what is required for the world not to die. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Grief is one way to understand grief. It's the integration, the full realization of the preciousness of what has been lost. Mm. It is the process mm. by which you really get that preciousness, mm. by which you really understand how precious it was. Yeah. If we don't have that understanding of how precious life on earth is, then 
we will never change our ways enough to protect life on earth. Mm-hmm. We have to hold it as sacred above any costs and benefits. Just like you wouldn't ask whether it's worth saving your child because that effort is offset by something else. It is infinite in value. The sacred is infinite in value. If we integrate that, if we digest that, if we we know that as deeply as we can, through grief, then we'll know what to do to serve life on earth. And actually all of our ecological crises will be very easy to solve. Mm-hmm. They're already easy to solve. Like the, the barrier to solving them is only social and political. It's not technological. You know, mm-hmm. if, we, if, if I could wave my magic wand and dictate global agricultural and industrial policy, uh, you know, we could, we could heal the planet in a matter of, we could, we could 95% heal the planet in 10 years. Mm. All the regenerative technologies are out there. All the practices yeah. are out there. Yep. So, so it's actually easy, <laughs> you know, to, to, to heal the planet. It's just our consciousness that is in the way of that. And, mm specifically it's the when we speak of consciousness i like to 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 talk about conscious of what mm. one person is not more or less conscious than another person the expansion of consciousness means becoming conscious of things that you were not conscious of before mm. grief grieving is a way to expand your consciousness mm. you become conscious of things that were mm. beyond your understanding. Mm. When we take in, not, and not just the loss, also the beauty. That's the second part. Mm. It's not just grief, it's also love. Yep. It's also, it's awe. Yep. It's it's to be to be overcome by the beauty. That's another way to understand how sacred it is. Mm. Yep. That's the other way to become conscious of something that, that we born into a modern society are rarely fully conscious of. Yeah. 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 Either way, it's almost like, almost like a tsunami wave of something that is so that like overpowers our our ego to some degree, whether it's awe and rapture or like pain and grief, but yeah, it's, it's, that's, it's really beautiful. Um, hmm. So I'd love to, um, the the <laughs> the image that you mentioned of like becoming a hermit um, is is kind of coming to mind and and I've had a similar impulse as myself in the last kind of year or two of just like you know maybe just go spend a year up in the mountains and and disconnect and I I'd love to like one of my hopes for this conversation as well was to kind of ground some of these ideas of yours for listeners in a way that um, it kind of speaks to how their lives play out in day-to-day experience and so I've I've chosen three quite emotionally charged words that you've defined in in your book um Mm -hmm. or or like redefined and so I'd love to kind of explore those three words with you if that if that sounds good sure 
the first word is laziness. Um, and you wrote that laziness is a rebellion against oppressive busyness and is a refuge from mental, physical, or emotional exhaustion. And so how might our belief around laziness, either in ourselves or other people, be kind of symptomatic of being entrenched in, in, in the old ways? Yeah. Like, what if you looked at laziness as something healthy? Right. As, as a form of protest, as a, as a uh, refusal to comply mm. with the program, the agenda that has been offered you, that has been imposed on you, that you yourself have agreed to, but on some level, you don't agree with it. Mm. You're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to procrastinate. I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm just not going to do that. Mm. And the conscious, your, your, you know, conscious mind is like, you have to do that. Uh, you, like, you're not going to make a living. You're going to be a bad person if you don't do that. You're going to be contemptible. Like, you have to do that. It'll try to motivate you and, 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 you know, you'll develop all these ways to whip yourself into action. And no matter what you try, like that soul level protest is still too strong and you end up finding all kinds of ways still to procrastinate, even though consciously you think that all the things that you're not doing are really important, but the soul has another agenda. Right. And then, cause a lazy person, someone who thinks of themselves as lazy might find that something in their life changes and all of a sudden they're not lazy anymore. All of a sudden they have, boundless energy and discipline to do something that they feel is, is important. Mm. And they might not be able to give a reason why it's important, but it becomes important to them. Mm. And they'll work 16 hour days without having to use any motivational techniques at all. Mm. So I look at laziness as a message. Because mm. my nature, our nature as human beings is creative. We, 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 we want to, to express our life energy mm. in materiality. So we are not fundamentally lazy. So if, 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 well, I mean, lazy can mean a lot of things. Like we also need periods of rest. We need periods to ferment in our minds. You know, we need periods of, of, of play. We need, I mean, so, so a lot can get grouped into the word lazy, but I, so I, I see laziness as, but I'll just call it laziness, right? I'll, I see it as a, as a message that some part of me is not on board with the life that I'm living, mm. with, with the work that I'm doing. And what happens if I listen to that? Yeah, it, it's almost like that, that process creates the space to actually listen and hear what the the genuine invitation is that we've maybe been blind to because of the the whipping and the the productivity yeah 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 beautiful um so this the second word and this is actually pretty related and this is one of my favorites is selfishness and you've written that um this is why even deluded selfishness is potentially a path to liberation and why I urge you to be selfish as best you are able. Believe it or not, to be genuinely selfish requires courage. 
So could you speak to this really beautiful reconception of a, of a generative, courageous selfishness and this idea of, of like radical self-trust that I think lies beneath it? Yeah. If you get serious about being selfish, you start to ask, what do I really want? Hmm. What really makes me feel good? Yeah. What is really to my benefit? Yeah. Get really serious about that. And you start thinking, well, okay, I'm going to die soon. I mean, it could be 30, 40, 50 years, but that's a blink of an eye. Right. So if I'm really going to be serious about selfishness, I've got to take that into account. Mm-hmm. You also ask, who am I? You ask, what really feels good? Like, what, what gives me the most pleasure, seriously? Someone asked me this already. This is my second podcast today, but I'll repeat myself. Like, because this came up before. Like, does it really feel good to like, is that like your highest pleasure to sit in your jacuzzi with a martini in one hand, you know, and a bag of chips in the other hand, uh, watching uh, porno? Like, (laughs) is that really as good as it gets? You know, like that's kind of the caricature of of uninhibited hedonism that we have uh, in our brains. Yeah, yeah. But you can do that, but you are not going to feel very good. Mm. Especially after your skin starts getting all wrinkly from being in the jacuzzi too long and you start to feel hungover and <laughs> like if you include that in your full experience out of pure selfishness, yeah, you're not yeah. going to feel very good. And then what about what you do to other people? Like you might feel like a momentary thrill um, from trampling on a humiliated enemy through for from you know winning your petty little battle or whatever. But how does that compare to helping somebody in need in a way that only you could have done? Mm-hmm. How does that compare to really being there for somebody when their soul is crying out for for help? Mm. How does it feel compared to um joining with others to create something so beautiful that it brings other people into tears. That feels a lot better. Mm-hmm. So maybe out of pure selfishness, when I really take it seriously, no bullshit, I'm not going to settle for second best. I'm going to be really selfish. Maybe those are the kind of things I start doing. Mm-hmm. It comes down to really what is our human nature at bottom. Yeah. What is the set? As I said, what is the self? Who am I at bottom? And so even, so like I said in that, in that, what you quoted, I said, even deluded selfishness can be a gateway to, I can't remember what I said, but, but because part of the process is, okay, here's what I think I want, what I think is going to make me feel good. Mm. It's that jacuzzi in the mansion, you know, with the, like whatever the scenario is. And so you get that. Yep. And then you're like, dang it. That isn't really what I wanted. Experiment failed. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But at least by doing that, you've affirmed the principle of trusting yourself, right. of trusting desire. Mm. And, you know, there's more like there's the other piece is um, recognizing what the natural next step of my trust is. And maybe there are things where I'm like, no, I'm not actually ready for that. I'm not, I'm still going to maintain 
a boundary. I'm not going to let myself shoot up heroin, mm-hmm. even if I want to again. Like I'm like there mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. there there there's a recognition that here is what I am ready to want. You know, mm-hmm. here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, how can I put it? I guess I'm just saying not not to ignore your natural caution. Right. This mm-hmm. isn't about being reckless. Yeah. But yep. it's about being honest. Yeah. And it, it but, but, feels Yeah. Yeah, it's not it, about like I think it's not like what I want in theory, it's what I actually want. Right. And maybe I don't like I might tell myself, yeah, I want to to go full throttle, like full psychopath, you know, full selfish, ruthless manipulate. Like, but that's an idea about what you want. Do you really want that? What do you really want right now? Mm-hmm. It's it, 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 we are so conditioned never to ask that question mm-hmm. that when I ask it of myself or when someone asks it of me, what mm-hmm. I notice is that I very quickly do this calculation to try to produce the answer that will meet the expectations and values of the person who asked yep, it. Totally. I try to be, give an acceptable answer, acceptable to them, acceptable mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. What do I really want? That is not something that, that most of us have really been accustomed to asking. Yeah. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like a, it's like a dangerous question because it risks upending so much of so much of our lives and the the sense that i got from just listening to you speak was like it's almost like selfishness in the face of our mortality it's like given the finite number of years that we have like what would be the most beautifully selfish way to feel great to feel amazing in that period of time and as you said that i think that would naturally lead to asking the question of like how can i be used how can i be of service um as it sounds like you've been kind of grappling with and that actually the, the the third word that I wanted to explore was the was the word purpose and um there's a another person who I know you're familiar with Martin Shaw the mythologist he <clears throat> he said this phrase that struck me he said you can he, he says you think that you can be anything you want but rather you were put here to be to make a very specific contribution and that your task is to follow your intuition there. And um, I was thinking before this conversation that in some ways, I think this podcast is, is a fun example because it would be really easy for me to say, well, this, you know, maybe only a thousand people, if I'm lucky, will, will hear this. And what difference is it going to make my, you know, my time could be more productive in so many other ways that I can actually measure the impact. I can earn money to donate to climate change foundations and things like that. So, you know, might as well just stop recording. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pointless. And, and so um, how, how, like what might be some of the ways to like remove that, that lens of separation um, and scarcity perhaps as well from this alive impulse to just contribute and to just kind of follow that sense of intuition to to be of service, like you said, to be to be used. Uh, somehow, I'm, um, somehow, somehow, your question isn't fully registering, and I'm I'm wondering if that's because I'm wondering what what question lurks underneath that question that you just asked. 
Mm. I think the, the question that is, is alive for me is the feeling of um, guilt, I think, that I sometimes sense. And at times as well, a sense of, of like, um, there of, of awareness of the other ways in which I could be spending my time, which are not this, and that perhaps those would actually be more aligned, would be more useful, would be more true yeah. to what I'm actually basically. Basically, you're gaslighting yourself. Mm. You're basically gaslighting yourself. Mm. You are telling yourself that you don't know something that you actually do know. Mm. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have actually a pretty good awareness of what is yours to do. Mm. And then like you just have, and you're doing it. And then, but then you have like this, you know, second guessing right. self-talk that tells you you're not doing it right, but you right. know that you are doing it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so like your question was kind of seeking some kind of, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> <Validation>. Affirmation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, well, kind of coming back to um what we were talking about earlier in terms of the uh, the, the kind of the difference between like playing in the intellectual realms, which it sounds like mm-hmm. you've you know obviously been doing for the last few decades, and kind of experiencing this new way of being. Um, there's a quote that I've shared on this podcast probably like so many times that listeners are probably sick of hearing it, but it's a, a proverb from a, a Papua New Guinea tribe. And they say, knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle. And um, to give some context, I've been thinking about this quote as I'm, I'm designing a course on exploring our nervous systems. And uh, in my mind, cultivating a greater sense of, of interoception or like internal self-awareness and listening to our bodies and like tuning into those subtle contractions um, is, is a way to kind of bring the intellectual knowledge into a, like an embodied reality. And so um, I think my, my curiosity is what have been some of those um, maybe rituals or approaches which enable you to kind of take the take the knowledge of of everything you've been writing about and actually have it live in live in the muscle and like live in your body or the or the bodies of people that you're around you're making an assumption that i have successfully done that <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that it's happened on at times and on occasion not necessarily 24 7 reality yeah. Why are you curious about that? For me, like what, why, why mm. do you want to know how it's happened for me? Mm. I'm curious because it's something that I'm, it's probably the question that is most alive for me in my life right now, in terms of also having been someone who has um, been very much in my head for the vast majority of my life, kind of being rewarded and praised for being um, intellectual in, in different ways and having had experiences of, um, being so alive and present to my body and my sensations and my emotions. And that for me, the, 
the most um, common way to experience that sun that you were talking about overhead, the, the reunion is through embodied experiences, be that yes. breath work, be that dancing, so basically, yeah. singing. Right. Yeah. So basically what you're doing now though, is asking for an intellectual instruction right. on doing something that's not actually intellectual. <laughs> so I can answer your question. What if I answered your question, not by explaining, but by singing mm. or by mm. moving, or maybe I transmit it through the voice mm. behind the words. And maybe when I do that, because some part of you is listening as a dog listens. The dog is not clouded by semantics. So a dog can understand something about me that you cannot understand, except that there is part of you that isn't listening to the words at all. Mm. That means that the answer to your question is actually visible right now and audible right now. Mm. These are deep mysteries. Mm. The usual ways that, that we have been trained to reach knowledge cannot reach those mysteries mm -hmm. any more than you can run to the horizon. No matter how far you run, you're still just as far from the horizon. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I... In the Phantom Toll Booth, there is one scene where Milo, the protagonist, is trying to climb an infinite stairway. Hmm. And he just never gets any closer. All he gets is tired. Huh. I, I think of it, and perhaps this is still, this is interesting. Um, like for me, some of these practices, techniques, rituals, it, it's almost like I it does help to use my mind to climb the stairs up to a certain point where I can then kick the ladder away and the ladder is no, no longer necessary. Um, but I, I do, and maybe this is, yeah, just part of, part of my process, but having um, certain access points, right? Certain ladders that will get me to a certain point where I can actually feel that sense of expansiveness almost yeah. kind of holding me. And then I'm like, oh, the ladder, I don't need the ladder anymore. All of these techniques are good. Whatever your, you know, yoga, breath work, tai chi, you know, right. like yeah. all of these embodiment yeah. practices are good. Mm -hmm. It's just that I'm not saying we should never talk about those. We should never tell each other about those. Mm -hmm. I guess I was more, I mean, maybe the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, I could name like the physical practices I do, but the ones that I gravitate to that are right for me, um, I don't know. I mean, like I could name some things, but, but everybody knows about these things now, you know, like, I guess, yeah, I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm just not, I just don't think it's, it's helpful necessarily to talk about my embodiment practices. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'd rather transmit my embodiment mm -hmm. 
And I think that something will be understood that way. Mm. Like if I wanted to explain not with the mind, maybe you and I would go for a cold plunge. Mm. Right. You know, that's one of the practices I do. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's your first time, I guarantee that you would have a tremendously enlightening experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I um, actually just went about an hour and a half ago. <laughs> you did? Yeah. 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 Or, or, or like, or even, or singing or chanting or, or any of those, those things. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear that. I hear that. Mm. Thoreau said something like, you find out, you get to know a man, you'll get to know a man much better by pinching him than by asking him a question. <laughs> yeah, or, or climbing a mountain or, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Yeah, thank you for almost like a, a refusal to answer the question on the, on the, on a, on a different, on a different plane. Yeah. No, I, I think there's, there's definitely something in, in that for me. Um, hmm. Yeah. You know, part of my, my training from school is when someone asks me a question, I answer it. Like right. I have to answer it. Right? <laughs> yeah. And now if it I'm must like, be the right question. <laughs> right. And now, like if I'm a professional smart guy, you know, then I have to be able to do that really well, you know, and answer, but I'm like, I'm coming to, this is part of, part of like, put me to good use Yeah. and insisting on being well used. It's like, well, what if yeah, I don't want yeah. to answer that question? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I have to answer it? You know, it's, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. And okay, so this is um, this is interesting. Um, something I heard you say, I think it was with Aubrey Marcus, was this phrase of, of I'm not fucking around anymore. And what mm. I've what I've certainly felt in the tone of your writing, not necessarily the words, is this this increase in conviction, and. I almost get the sense of like the, the image that came to mind was like Arjuna on the battlefield in the Gita having, you know, complete conviction in this battle that he must fight. And so, so I'm, I'm really curious, like you said, this is, I guess this has been a life for the last year and a half, but what do you think has shifted and, and has there been a moment where you've really felt that shift land? And, and is it that, that you're kind of like, like the, the chapter or maybe the, the harvest and the season of, writing and talking is maybe coming to a close and that there's something there's something new on yeah, the other side yeah like i'm not fucking around anymore that means that i'm done pretending mm. i'm done pretending to doubt when i'm actually clear mm. um not hiding behind false uncertainty mm and insisting on doing what I'm here to do. Mm. And just like not putting up with the other offerings. Mm. Like I'm not fucking around, you know? Don't use me for what I'm not here for. Yeah, I'm saying it to, to you, but I'm saying it to me. Mm. Like mm. what, have I been serving? That isn't really what I'm here to serve. As for how how I came to that, a lot of it was was witnessing the, what happened in the uh, COVID 
era. Mm -hmm. The slide toward medical totalitarianism and, and the intensification of all of the trends that had been disturbing me for, you know, decades mm -hmm. and thinking if I just hang back and philosophize and don't mm -hmm. take any risks, then what kind of world are my children going to live in? Like I'm here to do something about this. How do I know? Because I'm disturbed <laughs> because mm -hmm. I cannot just sit with this. And, and so that was, it was around that time that I began to become very outspoken about certain aspects of the COVID narrative and all that was going on around it that, you know, got me denounced and deplatformed and canceled and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And partly it's like, yeah, I'm done hiding, you know, I'm mm -hmm. done pleasing people. Like that was one of the things that I was serving mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than what I'm really here to serve. Mm. So serving, pleasing others, uh, serving, getting approval, mm -hmm. serving, making people like me, serving mm. an image. Probably it's just like an aging process, you know? For a long time, I, I felt like I was enjoying perpetual youth. I wasn't really aging very much. And then, you know, now like I can't see as well, you know, my hair's turning gray and I'm like, and my mother passed. That was also mm. a huge part of it. Maybe mm. that was the catalyzing thing. Because mortality, when and maybe it's for maybe you had something like this with your fiance too, but 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 when your parent passes, like that's incontrovertible proof that it's going to happen to you too. So a lot of the things that I had been serving or ambitious for just don't make sense when the fact of mortality really settles mm. into my body. Mm. And it has settled into my body. I don't know how I, that's the embodiment question again. Like mm -hmm. what made it mm -hmm. settle into my body? <laughs> Not some practice that I decided to do. You didn't do a mortality meditation for 10 minutes every morning? <laughs> well, I mean, actually um, on, on, on medicine, I was given a um, deathbed preview that was very powerful, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but no, I haven't been doing, but actually sometimes I do actually, mm. um, not every morning, but sometimes I do fast forward myself mm. to my last minutes, mm. but yeah, um, it's, it's that, it's that paradox that, that really accepting mortality makes you more alive. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm going to be serious about life now because mm -hmm. I'm not going to be here very long. Yeah. I'm serious yeah. about your selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, um, I, I'm just thinking back to what you were saying earlier around like, like choosing a partner as well and how there's this safety when we're kind of in that realm of optionality where, you know, we could potentially yeah. have any, any partner, any, you know, any partner out there, but in the act of fully committing and choosing to just one, it almost like opens up a, such a rich, avenue of depth and an aliveness that wouldn't be possible when when we or when i are in that realm of um i guess safety and that kind of yeah. not having committed to a certain path be that relationships right. work or anything like that right mm. yeah I've, I've also the other thing i wanted to comment on was i've kind of noticed more like humor coming through in your writing recently uh -huh. and um 
Yeah, I was I was wondering if like if that has just been like a natural evolution or if there's been some like again this is me in my mind but like have you been consciously exploring the idea of like trickster energy and like has that been a deliberate no, choice it's just, it's just, just, just like it's fun you're just yeah, having fun. Just fun yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no I, I love that um yeah well hold on i haven't put any humor in it what are you talking well, about well i so i, I read Those um, were dead serious when i mentioned santa claus <laughs> and stuff like that <laughs> People think I'm joking when I say Santa Claus actually exists. Uh, I, I, there was a there was an essay you wrote on on being busy, and at the end you were like, um, "Thank you for for giving me your precious time to to read this." Right, I know you must be busy. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Um, beautiful. Um, so there, there was there was one more kind of question that's that's. It was lurking and this i've been also listening to a lot of uh, martin shaw recently and kind of using yeah. his mythological lens as a way to kind of like understand what what the hell's going on um and he has this really beautiful phrase of it's it's helpful to carry three stories in your pocket mm -hmm. um especially mm -hmm. in these these underworld times and 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 the question was are there any are there any stories or myths or fairy tales that are kind of like lurking in your pocket um, or any kind of like animating your life right now? I can't say that I, I've really, really cultivated. Um, there's some of the keep that keep popping in. Let me think. It might take me a minute because I'm my I'm running out of brain juice because I was did this other podcast today and I'm, and the words kind of get uh, tired. Yeah, take but if time. you give me a minute, I can I can find something. Yeah, sure. Well, one of them has been. The, uh, the Emperor's New Clothes. Mm -hmm. Another is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, mm. which I would say qualifies as an actual myth. Okay, interesting. interesting. Yeah. A myth is bigger than any decoding of it. Mm. You can't reduce it. You can't, therefore, even construct a myth. Mm. You can construct a fake myth, but it'll be missing something. Mm. But you can also decode them and get a lot out of it, but you will mm. not exhaust it that way. So, mm. yeah, the Grinch is especially mysterious to me, but there's something like Grinch-like about myself in, mm. in this, you know, aloofness and not, he's up on the mountaintop huh. hating the Who's. <laughs> and, and not understanding the who's and thinking right. that their that their joy is because of the the toys you know and the boxes and bags and ribbons and wrappings mm -hmm. and trippings mm -hmm. and trappings mm -hmm. so in his in his avarice and stinginess mm -hmm. and and resentment and cynicism mm -hmm. he tries to make them miserable he tries to take everything that he thinks is giving them joy and I'm like, what way do I do that to others or to myself even? Mm. Um, this mm. this uh, repudiation of like the pleasures of life, uh -huh. you know, he's, he's and, and so he takes them all, mm. but he actually has not taken their joy. Mm. Mm. And then, you know, just at the moment where he's about to dub it, like he's taken it up to the top of Mount Crumpet to dump it, you know, his, 
And it's like, what's wrong with him? In the beginning of the of the story, it, it, it says something like, um, he's theorizing what's wrong with the Grinch. It could be that his shoes were too tight or perhaps that his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the most likely reason of all was the heart in his chest was two sizes too small. Mm. So like the shoes are too tight, like I'm just not comfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. My head isn't screwed on right. Like mm-hmm. yeah. um, I'm crazy, I'm deranged, I'm demented, you know? Mm. Um, but it's actually a caged heart. Mm. And so like, there's just so much in, st- I mean, I could talk mm. for hours about this one little fairy tale. And I'm sure Dr. Seuss hadn't thought all of this through in constructing these symbols, you know, but almost every line in that thing (laughs) is, is, is dripping significance. Yeah. And so I keep coming back to that one. And then in recent Mm. times, very much the emperor's new clothes, and that's a bit more obvious what that's about. Yeah. But even that has some elements that, that if you really explore it, you know, it, comes more and more alive yeah 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 wow i've i've never thought of the grinch in those terms but that's that's really beautiful and i and i yeah i also feel this um almost like the difference between some of the true myths or fairy tales versus like constructed stories and yeah. it, it is like there's almost like a like an aliveness and maybe there's many different retellings or different kind of slight variations where people have put a bit of their yeah. own personality or culture into it. But there's some kind of like, like a root underneath the story that it's yeah. connected to something. And it's a sure sign of the de- degeneration of our civilization that we're almost unable to construct new myths now. Mm. Almost unable to, to not just construct, but to discover. And to tell. You know, and, and instead to, we just have derivative after derivative after derivative of, of the ones we've inherited. Mm ad infinitum and mm. and like some of this i mean like we just tried to watch encanto a new children's movie yeah i've seen the trailer like like this was so contrived i couldn't watch it you know uh-huh. Uh-huh. it was so contrived and so artificial it was just wasn't a real story in a way mm. Mm. compared mm. to so so dr seuss miyazaki like his some of those i i it's not, you know, it's not that there's no myth makers anymore, mm. but we are certainly, I mean, that's why we have to mine the fairy tales and the old stories. Mm. There's not a lot of genuine in children's literature, almost, almost none mm. these days. Mm. So, but Dr. Seuss produced several, not mm. all of them, but, but the cat in the hat, how the Grinch stole Christmas, um, the Sneetches. Horton hears a who to some extent, um, and the um, um, oh um, the the uh, Lorax tree. Lorax, the Lorax. Lorax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that one there's like an obvious level of environmental interpretation, but there's deeper levels too. So so Dr. Seuss produced some, but yeah. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. There was I've I've rewatched um, Moana recently, and and that mm-hmm. has been like one film that has surprisingly like particularly the ending. Like really kind of, I felt like there was some deep truth there that I haven't mm-hmm. experienced often yeah. in, in some films. But and people can still tell good stories, you know, they may not rise to the level of a myth mm. yeah. or have that mythic resonance, but but there's still good storytellers out there. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, um, I'm conscious that it's, it's probably getting late over there where you are. So uh, yeah. would it be okay to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up? We can try. 
Okay. <laughs> Feel free to not answer these as well if that's if that's what's alive. Um, but the first question is, what is something unexpected that being a father to your four sons has taught you? That would that's not a rapid fire question. That that I can't answer that. Okay. At the moment. Okay. Um you recently wrote that your intent is to celebrate that which often passes beneath notice. Is there one example of something worth celebrating that comes to mind? I wrote that about mothers, mm. you know, and fathers, mm. but especially mothers. The And the people just doing the humble things never become heroes. They never are celebrated, but they keep the world together. They, they, they hold, they hold reality together. If they, if the amount of, unapplauded love that they put forth if that if that weren't there then yeah the world would fall apart i think you just answered both questions so thank you for that <laughs> um what is something radical that you suspect might be true but don't have proof for that santa claus actually exists <laughs> excellent um What's one moment in recent memory that moved you to tears? When I was listening to Philip, my uh, 17-year-old son, play the piano. What creative impulse is most alive in you right now? I want to build a sauna. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can curious listeners learn more about your writing, your work, your books, what you're up to in the world? What's the best place for them to find you? The internet. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, um, yeah, charleseisenstein.org or charleseisenstein.substack.whatever. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. Well, I, um, I jotted down a Hafiz poem. Um, that feels appropriate to read in this moment. Um, do you mind if I read it to you? Please. It goes, the small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. And... Yeah, this felt appropriate because I, I kind of consider your your books, your courses, your work as just being like like beautifully crafted keys that has have just been um, shared for the rest of us rowdy prisoners to to, <laughs> to use. So thank you. Um, and I'd like to close with a, a line from Rilke, and he said, "Try to love the questions themselves and live them now." Mm -hmm. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Well, I already told you. Why? Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Have a have a wonderful evening and appreciate yeah. the time. Yeah, this was, yeah, this was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app 
and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.